one of the opposite things of actual adaptive management and that's kind of reactive management and that's when you have a problem and the first thing you turn to is technology this product or this seed or something to fix the problem when really the the problem is probably something with to do with if you change your management that's what's going to actually fix the problem instead of addressing the symptom welcome to the soil health labs growing resilience podcast engaging ranchers farmers and researchers in the pursuit of healthy functioning soils Welcome back to another episode in the Growing Resilience Podcast. I'm Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And today we've got Stan Boltz, former NRCS State Rangeland Management Specialist. Right. Uh, uh, Stan has moved on and now is the Regional Soil Health Specialist, but he's still operating out of Huron, South Dakota. Um, Stan came to range or to soil health from a very different perspective. So, you know, one of the things I really like is Everybody has their own story of how the light bulb went on. Sometimes it went on really quickly, and sometimes it went came on really slowly. And Stan came to soil health just through the whole idea of dynamic soil properties. So that idea is that soils, uh, there are certain properties uh, in soils like um, infiltration or soil organic matter or soil structure that are dynamic. They change with management over time, either good management or, or not so good management. Um, I don't want to do too much of a spoiler alert, but Stan is a very knowledgeable guy, and we get to nerd out a little bit on a few things. He's very passionate about um, the disappearance of rangeland, you know, conversion to cropland, and uh, we nerd out especially on some of the effects of um, some of these cool season grasses like um, smooth brome and, and Kentucky bluegrass and their effects on soil health. Um, and then he also talks about perhaps some of the ways to manage that. And, and, and get, you know, from his perspective, 13 years at State Rangeland Management Specialist, he gives some really good uh, perspective. Bottom line, though, is everything comes back down to the soil and soil health, uh, you know, with his approach to regenerative management. Um, towards um, the end of the podcast, there's also a little bit of a segment. Stan is uh, very much a, um, uh, an expert in drought and drought management, and he gives a little bit of a background uh, of how they developed the South Dakota drought tool, which is rather interesting. Beautiful. Well, we'll get out of the way and let you guys enjoy Buzz and Stan Bolts. Stan Boltz, it's really good to see you again. And um, we just wanted to really talk about resilience. But uh, before we did that, Stan, for those people who don't know you, can you give us a little background about yourself and and how you came to be where you are right now? Okay. Um, I... I grew up in town. I didn't. Uh, I didn't grow up on a farm. I always wish I had <laughs> growing up that we had moved out onto a farm, but that never happened. But um, when I was 16 years old, I was helping my dad build a deck, and uh, a rancher pulled up and asked if I wanted to be on his hay crew. And I looked at dad, and he said, "Yeah, go for it." So 
I started uh, helping with uh, putting up hay on this ranch and ended up working on that ranch for six years. And I really enjoyed, you know, that kind of work and whatnot. And of course, you know, I was getting to the point where I was trying to decide what to do with myself. But uh, even after six years, I'd never heard of the term range or range science or anything. And uh, so when I went to college, I was I went as a pre-vet major and I was going to go that route. And I decided I didn't want to go to school for nine years or whatever it's going to take. So uh, I don't like to work that hard. But anyway, uh, I was taking a botany class and I asked the professor, you know, what can I do with I like botany, you know, and plants and all that. What can I do with this as a career? And he named off a few things and then he mentioned range and I'd said I'd never heard of it. And then uh, and then I realized that it tied to ranching and everything else. And so that's the direction I went. But uh, I at the time I was going to Shadron State College and, and they have a great range program now, but they don't have one there or they didn't have one at the time. So I had to move. I went to uh, actually went down to Abilene, Texas to school for one year and then went back to uh, University of Nebraska Lincoln and finished up there. And uh, I at that, by that time I decided I wanted to work for the Soil Conservation Service. I thought that was probably one of the better outfits to work for maybe, but there was a hiring freeze going on. So I went and worked in a gold mine in Nevada and uh, and then uh, actually volunteered for the Soil Conservation Service out in Nevada and, and then a so, job came open. So the Soil Conservation and, Service now being the N NRCS. Yeah. Right, I was gonna, I was gonna get to that, but yeah, at the time okay. it was Soil Conservation Service. I've been around a little while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, um, before that, it was the Erosion Conservation Service, I think. But anyway, um, so I, uh, they knew who I was. They didn't know who the other two applicants were. So I got a job in Nevada, and I thought I'd be there a couple years and move back to the the plains. But uh, ended up staying there for ten years and really enjoyed it there. But. Um, started having kids and decided that it was time to move back closer to family. So after 10 years, we moved, uh, got a, I found a job in South Dakota. Uh, and, and the whole time I've worked in now the Natural Resources Conservation Service, um, I've really kept the title as range management specialist. And, and I'm kind of proud of that because <laughs> I like that, that occupation and working in that. So for 33 years, I have been uh, in the range management uh, discipline. I worked um, initially on a regional team when I moved to South Dakota, but then I became the state range management specialist, did that for about 13 years. And then uh, in 2016, I, I uh, saw an opening for soil health specialist and I decided might as well apply and see what happens. <laughs> Ended up getting uh, offered the job. And so that's what I've been doing since 2016. Wow, Stan, that's that's uh, that's amazing. Um, I, I'm interested, you know, um, one of the things that really surprised me was, um, and I was I was I was set straight pretty early by you guys. But one of the things that really did surprise me was that it seemed like not enough. Um, you know, we weren't paying much attention to soil health. In, in rangeland. So I'd be really curious to see what the transition was for you from rangeland specialist to being the um, uh, soil health specialist, the regional soil health specialist. What was that change and, and, and how did that look like? And how does it again affect your view on rangeland? Okay. Um it was, I probably came at it from a different uh, 
direction than a lot of people um, uh, getting kind of interested in the soul health aspects of things. I I spent quite a bit of time uh, working on and developing ecological site descriptions, and that's really just a description of all the physiographic features and the plant communities and the soils on you know specific soils out on the rangeland. And I, I got to be pretty good at that, I guess. And uh, one of the things that really uh, interested me over time is how you can see changes in the plant community occur because of management, but it really seemed to me that there's something else. No, I get my uh, lost my signal there. Hopefully, <laughs> I I can still hear okay. you. Okay, all right. Sorry about that. I can hear. There's you. something. Yeah, yeah it does that, and I'll just keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's something going on underground that's that's happening. I think before you see the changes in the plant community. So. And I and I so I got really interested in dynamic soil properties, and those are properties that are not inherent properties, but they change with management, as you well know. So that I really started getting interested in dynamic soil properties, and I started talking to the people in that in that realm, I guess. And uh, so it it seemed to me that we could describe a lot of the changes that are occurring in our state and transition diagrams on ecological sites probably through soil changes that we don't even know about or really know what's going on yet. So I started really getting into that. Go ahead. So give us one or two examples of a dynamic soil property. OK, so uh, one of the uh, one of the properties that's very affected by management is aggregate stability. So when you look, when you pull a small soil pad out of the soil and you dip it in water, does it retain its uh, structure and uh, and composition or does it fall apart? And that's very key to erosion. Um, another one is, uh, uh, well, in my mind, infiltration is a dynamic soil property, although it's a combination of soil characteristics. And that's very much affected by management. Another one is organic matter. Um, you know, we see big changes in organic matter. Those are probably the, the three biggies, um, you know, that I can think of off the top of my head. So so those, and, and those uh, in turn affect the plant community and the plant community changes you see above ground. And so I didn't really tie the two together, you know, soil health and dynamic soil properties initially, but over time I started working with Jeff Hemingway, you know, our past agronomist. And uh, and I, I really started to see the tie between soil health and dynamic soil properties. And so when, when the time came from when this job was advertised, I just, it was just a natural flow from where I was at. And I thought, you know, this really fits with what I'm talking about. And really, um, and you kind of alluded to that, there's not a lot of people talking about soil health on range on grasslands. So it's it's sort of a, uh, a part of the the soil health movement, if you will, if, if you want to call it a movement that uh, there hasn't been a lot done on. And so I'm hoping to have an effect on that and and uh, and fill that void as much as possible. <laughs> so uh, I love that idea. You certainly have left uh, a, a big um, impression uh, even even though you're not in South Dakota but you know so much of the work your fingerprints seem to be all over the rangeland management stuff <laughs> I, I guess that's what happens when you're there for 13 years as the state rangeland specialist right <laughs> yeah hopefully you have some impact and they're like who was that guy <laughs> just didn't float off into the sunset yeah. Yeah, well, that actually segues nicely into the next question. 
you know, we, we talk about native rangeland, native grassland, um, and, and threats to the native range, rangeland or grassland, but how about educating us on what that actually means? Because if I drive, you know, down, uh, you know, from, from Sioux Falls to, uh, say, um, uh, uh, to Rapid City, and I look out the window, and if it's not row crop land, I'm just assuming it's rangeland, and I may be dead wrong. So help educate us on what we mean by native rangeland. Okay, so grassland. When you, uh, you, you could probably use the term grassland in a broader sense, and that would cover rangeland, pasture, you know, those two together. But if you're talking about native rangeland, there's really kind of three uh, sets of definitions you can kind of think of or look at. There's the textbook definition that um, essentially, and the way, the easiest way to, to use that definition is to say what it's not. So if you take out cropland, urban land, uh, true forest, um, you know, standing water, um, there was one more I was thinking of. Oh, and I suppose pasture. If you take those out, everything that's left is kind of rangeland by the textbook definition. And essentially it's just um, land that produces grasses, shrubs, and forbs, and is used for food and fiber production and is not suitable for cultivation. I mean, that's kind of the textbook definition. Um, okay. So then the second definition that I think of when people say native rangeland, and that's kind of the one we went by in South Dakota for quite a while. And that's what I kind of call the common sense definition. And that's land that probably hasn't ever been broken and either is dominated by native uh, grasses and forbs and shrubs or has the potential to be dominated by those you know still has the potential to grow native plants may not be doing it right now but so that's kind of the the common sense definition if you will that when you think about native range there's a third definition though that's uh that's out there too and that's kind of the official usda definition and that's the way they look at it is uh, land. It, they look at current management and future management. And so if you're managing it right now, like rangeland, and you plan on doing that in the near future, then that's how they classify it. So it could really be, it could almost be cropland now in a way. And if you start grazing it and moving it towards a grassland, then, uh, then that, and you're not, and so what they call range and not crop or pasture is basically if you're not fertilizing it you're not uh replanting it every so many years you're not uh doing uh soil tests you're not irrigating it those types of things then it essentially becomes rangeland so um so that's there is a lot of you know different ways to look at it but you know range by and large you know would be um, natural plant communities and, or the potential for natural plant communities and uh mostly unsuitable for cultivation, although a lot of land in South Dakota, they'll try to farm almost anything. <laughs> so it seems like, uh, and you know, that's that's the right the right to do that too. So not not say anything bad about it, but if it, if it, if you can get a tractor on it, they might they might try to get be plowed up at some point in time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, when you talk about plant communities, are you talking about, uh, you know, five or ten species? Are you talking about uh, when you've got something that is um, uh, a, a native rangeland or something that's well managed? 
So um, we have, uh, you know, you can you can get into the hundreds of species pretty easily if you spend a little time on on even just you know five or ten acres looking around in a in a typical uh, native you know highly diverse plant community there can be you know literally hundreds of plant species out there on, on just a few acres really um you know 50 or 60 is not uncommon you know um to, if you spent i'd say an hour walking around a few acres you're going to find you know easily 50 different plant species out there so the diversity is is uh, a pretty amazing really when when you get out on on something that has some diversity to it and and uh, has been managed for that um, or at least not against it anyway. <laughs> so. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. Well, you know, I wish I had recorded our previous uh, chat that we had. Uh, we did that by phone, but last time we chatted, you know, you talked to me about a, a few major threats to rangeland and I wanted you to uh, talk a little bit about that for us please. Okay um, so really I think in uh, in South Dakota and in the northern plains um, there's probably two major threats to um, you know diverse native rangeland and uh, one of them is pretty obvious and that's uh, being converted to cropland. Um, in my mind I think that that is definitely happening on a on a pretty large scale, and but I think the other the other threat that is probably almost uh, more of a threat to our native rangeland, maybe because it's uh, so not quite so obvious to people, and that's the invasion of of non-native cool season grasses, primarily uh, Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome, and um, that creeps in, and uh, and people aren't. Is willing to uh, to change it maybe because they still get grazing off of it, and it's uh, not quite as obvious of a threat. But uh, when you look at uh, native grasslands, especially tall grass prairies, as a as a biome, if you will, you know that's one of the uh, most threatened biomes in the world, really tall grass prairies. And um, when when you look at South Dakota specifically, uh, we still have quite a few acres of of tall grass prairie um, but uh, other states uh, you know it's becoming it, everywhere it's becoming less and less but uh, it, and probably one of the reasons it's so critical not just tall grass prairie but our mixed grass prairies all the native prairies um, uh, it, it's very critical for our our grassland obligate uh, migratory birds you know uh, they they are also um, probably next on the list, you know, for a lot of the endangered species slots because uh, there's a lot of those birds that are in decline and and uh, and other wildlife species too. But uh, um, and I think not just wildlife, but I think it's a it's a threat to our uh, agricultural enterprises. You know, I think the more we're diversified, not only from a plant species standpoint, but from a enterprise standpoint in in our in in our agricultural sector i think that makes it healthier you know and having having grassland communities out there allows for a lot more diversity in our in our enterprises so any direction you look i think and i always say this quite a bit is that 
if it makes sense uh, ecologically, it normally makes sense economically too, or vice versa. So I think um, we need to guard against that um, that loss of that diversity from from every aspect. So I kind of rambled on there a little bit. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Um, yeah, that that sounds good. Um, okay, well, just explain. You know, one of the things you talked about some of the the cool season grasses. And I witnessed, I, I went out there to a stand that was, I would say, 90, 95% smooth brome. Um, and, and you talked about it being death to soil health. I, I think you used that word. Explain to us why an invasive species like smooth brome is going to really um, be, uh, destroy your rhizosphere, and I, I don't want to use that word too much, but destroy the root zone. T talk to me a little bit more about that. Okay, so um, if you if you take some time and, and dig some holes out there and you look um, under a, a thick patch of smooth brome, and that's probably the place where you'll see it the most, um, you, you'll see some changes in the soil. If you if you take and dig a hole in, in solid stand of smooth brome and then right next door in the same soil, something that has native grasses on it, you'll see a difference in color. And probably what'll stand out even more to you is a, a difference in structure. Uh, what I've seen time and time again is, is uh, when you get below the top couple inches in a smooth, smooth brome stand, the soil becomes almost massive below that that upper surface and uh in the uh, okay the, just explain at massive for us so that okay that we can understand what that means from a non-technical standpoint so massive uh basically is is without structure it, it, the soil loses its structure so when you look at a native prairie soil what you'll normally see in the northern plains is it starts out with granular or in the old days they called crumb structure. And so they're small little peds of soil, looks like a chocolate cake, you know, or something. Um, and uh, so the small peds, the granular structure, then it usually will transition to what we call blocky structure. So they're a little bit larger uh, peds of soil, you know, maybe the size of a dime or, you know, between a pea and a dime. That's um, kind of what you'll see with blocky structure. The other thing you'll see sometimes is prismatic structure. So it'll be these tall kind of like columns of soil that'll break into blocks or granular structure. And so there's defined structures all the way through the profile and that changes as you move down the profile with with massive structure. It's just one big blob of dirt. <laughs> right. So and, there are no macro pores between the uh, between the soil uh, between right. the soil particles. Yeah, yeah. So There's structure no is so yeah. So structure is so often misunderstood, and we we have a lot of that. But you know that idea that you're losing those air spaces or pore spaces between, uh, and that's what. Sorry, I I interrupted no. you, but I really no. wanted you to describe that. So beneath the smooth brome, basically all of those air air spaces disappear. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So the bulk density usually goes up. Um, and, and there's a lot of infiltration studies that show uh, infiltration is not as good when you are dominated by smooth brome. 
uh, it may not be as bad as heavily overgrazed short grass like bluegrass or something, but it's it's not as good as native grasses. Um, and I mentioned I wanted to point out first the things that you'll see if you yep. dig a hole. Now, now beyond that, there are there are research studies that show um, mycorrhizal fungi specifically, but other um, other soil my, my microbiota that are common in native grasslands uh, become very much diminished or or reduced under uh, smooth brome specifically dominated communities and and in general they've seen that under other uh, non-native invasive cool season species there's other studies that show that too but this one study in particular that I, I point to a lot um, they took a a block of soil if you will that was underneath uh, what had been smooth brome for a number of years. They took that soil to a greenhouse. They took out all the roots. They killed the smooth brome, and they just put that soil in there. And then they planted native grass seed, and it wouldn't even germinate. <laughs> they added water. They, you know, they had light, and the the seed wouldn't even germinate. And so that, as many weeds do, they alter their 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 area around them to make it better for themselves and smooth brome is no exception it changed that soil so that it was favorable for itself and very unfavorable for the native species and i so the way i i describe it the way i look at it is basically there are no native mycorrhizal fungi here in america if you will that get along with smooth brome and so the ones that are native they kind of die off and they go looking for the native grasses and the smooth brome just kind of sterilizes the soil essentially. Um, I think Kentucky bluegrass does does it maybe not to as big of an extent, but it it has it does other things. It changes the soils in other ways that uh, still ends up being uh, very similar impacts. Um, okay. And yeah. So that almost sounds like an allelopathic effect, right? And not to use yeah. too, too big a word, but yeah. It, and the, although you know, with allelopathy, you know, like like we suspect there is with crested wheatgrass, with allelopathy, there's particular chemicals that are causing that. In this case, it's just um, I think in my mind, I think that because the smooth brome goes down there and and it doesn't work with the mycorrhizal fungi eventually those micro mycorrhizal fungi just die off and and disappear right. so right. it's a process over time um yeah. i don't i don't think it's yeah exactly a chemical but you know and kentucky bluegrass does uh other things that are equally as kind of bad for the soil um what you'll see with kentucky bluegrass over time first of all i think where the process starts is that all of most all of its roots are very close to the surface so when it does rain or uh, when you know nutrients are being allocated all that really starts happening in the surface and all the things that were happening down through the profile kind of stop happening and so you get this concentration of of activity if you will and and uh, and and the Kentucky bluegrass so it makes this thick mat of roots right near the surface now what roots are made of partially that makes them uh, persistent over time is lignin okay and so and it's kind of like a chicken or the egg thing I don't know exactly you know which happens first but what happens is uh, it, be, it makes that environment more favorable for nitrogen 
And, and what happens when that occurs is you get more bacteria and then you have less fungi and specifically in the case of Kentucky bluegrass, I think less saprophytic fungi. And so you reduce saprophytic as well as mycorrhizal. But the key in our, the key that helps nutrient cycling, I think on rangeland, what I'm thinking anyway, is saprophytic fungi. And those, those are the guys that break down plant material um, uh, near the surface of the, of the soil. And so over time, what you end up with is this buildup of what we call a thatch mat layer. And that thatch mat layer kind of uh, just puts this armor on the soil, which is good for soil erosion maybe. But uh, what happens then is is nothing really is getting through to that profile. And, and over time, what you'll see is right below that thatch mat layer that's built up under Kentucky bluegrass is it changes the soil structure. It makes it platy. So a lot of times we'll see platy structure right below that thatch mat layer. And then, and then the characteristic lack of structure and lack of color below that. And so both of them end up doing kind of the same thing. They just do it in different ways. And, uh, and they're both equally detrimental to. Now, you know, and we'll talk about this maybe about how to control those species and, and the possibility for controlling them. But, but uh, you know, again, it's not thought of as being a, a terrible thing for a lot of folks because you still, you can still graze them and get, you know, produce beef on those acres. And that's part of why neither Kentucky bluegrass nor smooth brome have ever been officially listed as a noxious species is because they don't meet the definition because they're still valuable in some ways. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that's a, that's a good uh, good place to actually ask. You know what I've what I've noticed as I've sp spoken to guys who who um, run run cows or, or cow cat or basically run cattle is there's a diversity of opinions on you know how to deal with that smooth brome or the the, the native cool uh, the the invasive cool season species. You know, some guys are saying, that, you, you know, you've got to graze it down to the nub and abuse it, or was the word I've used. And other guys say, you know, you've got to, you've, you, you can't really fight it, but you, you've, you know, if you, if you graze it way down, what you're also doing is grazing down, its growth point is going to go down as well. And then you're going to graze out what is left of the native cool season species like porcupine grass or uh, needle and thread or green needle grass so, or, or even I guess uh, wheatgrass. So mm -hmm. could you comment about the different management philosophies around that and give give us your take from from your time there how we should be managing those grasses? Okay so um, luckily and on the one hand um, both Kentucky bluegrass especially Kentucky bluegrass but even smooth brome they they begin maturing slightly earlier than our native cool seasons do, um, generally speaking. So there is a there is a small window in there when you can you can essentially abuse or or heavily graze those pastures, and probably not have a big impact on the native cool seasons. Um, and that becomes one of the one of the main strategies that's that's employed to try to to turn back Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome. And that's uh, early heavy grazing and then and then getting off and then moving to more moderate, you know, grazing. The the problem uh, oftentimes, and it does work, and I've talked to people where 
they've actually made a change on their operation and and seen a, a large increase of native grasses come back. The the problem with that for a lot of folks is that they have so many acres to try to get a limited number of cattle across in that short window of time, you know, and have the impact they want and need. Um, it's just becomes kind of untenable to to really achieve the resource goals they want and still uh, keep, you know, what they need is about 3000 cattle for two weeks in the spring and then go back to their 300 for the rest of the year, <laughs> you know, or something. And and in some ways you can you can modify your numbers that way, maybe using stockers, but probably not for that short a period of time very, very easily. So um, that's that's kind of one of the 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 main strategies that's employed to try to combat um, even cheatgrass and some others too, but uh, especially Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome. The other one that is probably more more utilized in the eastern part of our state is uh, is prescribed burning, and uh, prescribed burning has been has been shown and been and, and used and it's very effective, probably more so on Kentucky bluegrass. Um, uh, smooth brome, I think it's effective there too, but it seems to really work well with Kentucky bluegrass. So um, what you're looking at there is probably, you know, um, uh, an early May, probably fire is probably uh, in that time frame is probably the best. Um, we have some some restrictions in terms of uh, nesting and, and things where, um, you know, maybe the timing isn't quite right there, but at any rate, you know, like a late April, early May kind of burn is really effective at knocking Kentucky bluegrass back and then and then doing the right kind of management afterwards to to keep it at bay. Um, there are uh, some other strategies I've seen. I know one guy that has um, something like 43 paddocks and every year he takes one of his paddocks and he just grazes it into the dirt basically. And, and not just in the spring. And then he'll rest it the next year, entirely rest it, and then he'll put it into his regular rotation for the next five to eight years or something like that. And he's seen pretty good luck with getting natives back using that kind of strategy. So there's there's probably as many different ways as there are different ranchers to to try to to work on it. And I think, uh, and I think you mentioned him already maybe, but, uh, uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Jim Falstick, and he says, you know, use what you've got, but manage for what you want. And uh, if if anyone understands why diversity is important, I think it's it's Jim uh, as far as the a rancher goes that I've I've worked with. But uh, so that it's there, you know, utilize it, but always try to be managing towards, uh, you know, a different maybe resource goal. And and that's key is is diversity, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and I think what I'm also hearing you say is you can't fight this, you know, and it's it's already in the natural system, so you've got to work with it. Yeah, one of the stories I often hear is guys are just saying that, that as they've managed over the last 10, 15 years, you know, they're they're seeing their smooth brome patches decrease and decrease. I'm also assuming that some of the natives are there, that the tillers are underneath the soil, and then once you give that smooth, you know, once you cut that canopy open with your cows, 
you're giving that that the the natives a little bit of a chance to grow and so it's not even seeds but it's still um old old growth is that right yeah and there, there is a couple of things um i i kind of neglected to mention too um you know i mentioned two two strategies to try to combat uh, uh cool season invasive species but uh there are there are others and they and they've actually been used effectively too and i know um, one rancher in particular has used um, Roundup actually to, um, you know, at, at certain rates to to especially smooth brome, but you know even Kentucky bluegrass. So you knock it back. What I, whatever strategy you know that I, that I think a person's going to choose, I always tell them to. One of the first things you got to figure out, and this goes to your comment there, is that. Uh, do I have the potential for natives to come back? Are they even there? And you'll be amazed, you know, the vegetative propagules, um, that's, you know, the rhizomes and things that still exist out there, they can last for a long time. And so what I tell people is go in there and and do, you know, good grazing management. Try, try the early heavy grazing, uh, moderate levels of rotation, and, and definitely rotating your grazing. Um, try that management first and start watching to see if you have the natives there. And if you start to see some natives coming, then start keep employing some of these strategies we're talking about. Maybe maybe it's chemical even. But um, if you do that for a couple of years, three years or something, and you don't see any natives at all, we're probably at that point looking at uh, you know a range seeding to try if if your ultimate goal is to get those native species and get good diversity back, because there are some some areas and again it goes back to that definition our common sense definition of native rangeland. Uh, there are areas that we maybe think were never broke, but may have been broken 40 years ago, and and the natives are just aren't even there, you know. So um, so. There's a potential there, and we we kind of have to kind of uh, dig at it for a while to see what we've got, and then and then decide how to move forward from that. And uh, so, uh, seeding, you know, arranged seeding, kind of replacing the stand is is another method too. Probably, obviously, more expensive. And yep. like I said, you know, chemical can work sometimes, but I think, you know, the the two uh, easiest methods in a sense are that early heavy grazing followed by a good rotational grazing and then uh, prescribed burning. And I know prescribed burning is a scary, scary word in some places, <laughs> but uh, and it, it it is more difficult to manage probably, you know, the further west you go, you know, and, and it becomes more of a risk. But um, with with a good prescribed burn plan and uh, the right kind of, of manpower and equipment, it's really very doable, you know, and the, the few times the few times that we've seen, you know, and I'm thinking Nebraska and South Dakota, the times that we've had escapes and and fires get away from us, uh, basically the prescribed burn plan was not followed. Um, and that's, it comes right down to that. You know, it wasn't, if the plan had been followed, if they had burned within that prescribed burning window, both for weather and, and all the uh, uh, attack stuff and everything, um, they would not have had an escape you know it's just it just comes down to that you know if you follow the plan it'll work <laughs> but uh, yeah. but i can understand if people are a little hesitant you know that that's totally understandable understandable too so but it is a, it, it it is an effective way to control some of those cool seasons well that's that's interesting i i well, um yeah and luckily you know most are 
our bigger problem now it's moving west, but our bigger problem with Kentucky bluegrass, uh, which is the one that prescribed burning is very effective with, is more in the eastern part of the state anyway. So, you know, we have we have people probably more willing to burn in the eastern half of the state, and so you know, luckily that's that's a good thing because uh, Kentucky bluegrass is gradually marching westward too, but um, it's not as bad west west of the river. So. Anyway, sorry to jump in there. But. No, not at all, not at all. All right, well, want to change tack very slightly here and ask you, um, uh, why do more progressive graziers, ranchers, talk about diversity so much? Okay. <laughs> um, so, and we, we'll probably talk about this more in a little bit, but... Uh, you know, and I gotta—I have to say it because I'm in the soil health division now. But uh, <laughs> there are four soil health principles, and and uh, w when we talk about it on cropland, you know, the way we say it is is uh, maximize cover, uh, minimize disturbance, um, and help me if I forget them. But uh, extend the the growing the root the growing Keep roots living roots as much as possible, yep, yep. and then uh, and then maximize diversity. Well, on grazing lands, especially rangeland, I have four, my principles are a little different. So it's optimize cover, optimize disturbance, um, you know, extend the living root, but I think instead of extending living root is enhance the living roots. And the and then, the, the, of course, maximize diversity, I'll go along with that one. Now, out of those four principles, they all apply on rangeland and grassland, pasture, cropland, wherever you're at. But the one to me that is the most key, the most critical on grasslands is diversity. I think um, that's the one I think that we have the most ability to change or impact through our management. And I think it's the one that is going to improve the soil health the most over time is by managing that diversity above ground. Um, that's going to get us more diversity underground and, you know, increase our soil health. So um, I think the the more progressive ranchers are seeing that and um and let me just let me paint a picture here and uh and i and i think it'll illustrate uh what why it's so important maybe um so the picture is this it's a it's probably a half dozen red angus cows um they're very probably a body condition score six uh they're very sleek they're very happy um they're standing in grass that's at least belly deep and it's very green and lush looking um so happy cows really healthy green growing grass this picture it's a real picture i have it on my computer <laughs> was taken in august of 2012. now if you know anything about 2012 that was one of the worst drought years we've had recorded on you know in our history almost so how could how could that be you know well that picture was taken on one of the ranchers places that that lives and breathes diversity and that's Jim Falstick and and I already mentioned him once he's uh, hopefully his ears are burning a little bit <laughs> but uh, so one of the keys one of his uh, resource goals is is maximum diversity and he and he believes it and he manages for that now if you go on his place not every acre has you know, big blue stem and green needle grass and western wheatgrass. I mean, there's still some areas that are probably still dominated by smooth brome, but but he's working towards that and he's getting changes. You're seeing changes on his place 
and uh, more and more diversity all the time. And not just grasses, but the forbs too and, and shrubs too. So, um, and, and we'll probably talk about this more, but the management, there's so much more management that gets you through a drought that happens well before the drought occurs than, than that that occurs during the drought. So, you know, that's, that's key. And one of the, because, you know, because diversity builds diversity above ground, builds diversity below ground, it makes that whole system more resilient and able to withstand the drought. And so you build that resiliency in before the drought happens and you can make it through the drought and have those red Angus cows that are sleek and standing in grass up to their belly in August of 2012. So um, anyhow, yeah, diversity. Okay, well, that's amazing. Well, um, I wasn't going to ask that question about drought, but why don't you dive in there in terms of management before drought that that it really affects the drought uh, or, you okay. know, the, the, the resilience of your place? Uh, I think it's really relevant right now. Yeah, so um, we we have looked back at at a uh, a publication that's been been really good publication that we've used a lot and we'll talk about that more maybe with the drought tool too but um and that's the nebraska south dakota drought management handbook and um it's got a longer title than that but that's the short the short version of it and that in that handbook there's a research study that that they put in there and what it shows is um it's over like it's from 1963 to 1967 is the years they show uh, on the where they collected clipping data and precip data but when you read the study in 1961 and 62 prior to their data collection they had a very severe drought in those two years so when you come into 1963 the first year of data collection they had two sites one was a was a rangeland site in excellent condition and one was a rangeland site in fair condition and so what you see is the year after 1963 and 64 they had normal precip so normal years of precip 63 both the excellent and the fair condition sites after two years of drought had less production but the excellent condition site had recovered about halfway up to its potential the fair condition site was only about a quarter then the second year after the drought the excellent condition site had improved all the way back to its uh, normal pr production potential, the fair condition site had only come back halfway. So then in 1965 was a very severe precip year. Both sites crashed again for that one year. The next year was a normal precip year. The excellent condition range site or uh, grassland site, however you want to call it, improved all the way back in one year with normal precip. The fair condition site was only a quarter of the production that year after that one year of drought. So what I hope that all means that you could follow that. Basically what it's saying is the condition of those those sites before the drought happened has a huge impact on how fast they recover after the drought. You know, after we get normal rainfall, how fast do they come back? And so that's that's textbook definition of resili resiliency is how how do they bounce back? And and so it's it's very evident. Uh, through through um, some research studies and through what we've seen that those sites that are in good condition, excellent condition, uh, they're going to withstand the drought uh, way better than the sites that are that are already kind of you know hurting. And it makes sense, you know, if you're sick uh, and then you get the flu, <laughs> you're 
you know, it may, it may be the end of you, you know, but if you're, if you're healthy, you're going to withstand those, those hits a lot easier, you know, so it's, it's a natural system. It behaves the same way, I guess. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So well, whatever you're doing before is going to be magnified. Your management then is going to be really magnified uh, in that drought here. Well, that, that makes a, a whole lot of sense. Well, you said it a lot better than I did. <laughs> yeah, that cool, makes there we go. <laughs> I, you said it in like three words. I could have done it that short. It would have been better. No, but anyway. I like it. Well, um, you know, um, we've talked extensively. Uh, Mitch Faulkner and I talked extensively about the drought tool, but I know that this is your baby. So this is your chance to talk about the drought tool. Um, you know, Mitch told me that, uh, uh, you know, you didn't need that much of a com computer skills to use the drought tool and I'd never used it. Mitch Faulkner talked me through the drought tool. So uh, I went in, did my own th uh, thing with it and I was so surprised at how, um, you know, how simple it was to use. And I know this is your baby. So why don't you tell us a little bit more? Like I said, Mitch has talked about it, but let, let's hear what you have to say as well. Well, I, I don't want to take a lot of time, but um, it was interesting. The drought tool really started as a, a tool. It was supposed to just be within our agency. And so when, when our range people go out and do a clipping to see how much vegetation or how much production there is, um, one of the things they have to adjust for is the kind of year it is. You know, what uh, percent of normal production do we have based on the amount, the weather, you know, the rainfall. And and that was a hard number for them to put into the equation. They just couldn't, you know, is it, are we 50% of normal or are we 80% of normal? So we, again, and that's why I pointed out that Nebraska, South Dakota uh, drought management handbook. In there, they had uh, two different, ways of predicting what the production would be based on rainfall and uh and so we we i mean it was myself and and uh probably rick peterson and, and a couple other folks and mitch was in on it pretty early too we just put together a simple little spreadsheet to to put that formula they had in the drought management handbook into the spreadsheet and then we just distributed it amongst our our range people you know and and we used it for gosh i don't know probably four years, you know, just in amongst ourselves. And uh, somebody, and I, I can't say who exactly, said, hey, this is, you know, pretty handy, you know, to, to be able to kind of predict what the production will be based on rainfall, at least in the near future. Um, why don't we kind of make this available to a wider audience? So that's kind of where it started. And um, what happened, the, a lot of different things happened. One of the things that that was going on at the same time that we didn't know about was the NRCS drought calculator, which was being developed by um, Dr. Gail Dunn and uh, Arnold Norman with our uh, natural, National Technology Center. And uh, so they were developing that at the same time we were developing this, this South Dakota drought tool. And so when we when we found out about what they were doing and, and we started talking to Dr. Gail Dunn and he was very gracious and helped us a lot too in, uh, in coming up with ideas of how to put it together. Um, one of the things early on, though, that we decided was we wanted to make it really simple. You know, we don't, you know, it's a one, two, three, and you're done, basically. And uh, and so that was our one of our major goals. And then, and really just um, a tool, it's just a tool, you know, to help you make decisions as to whether or not 
you know, should I sell cows? Should I uh, buy more feed? You know, should I look at, you know, when I'm sitting here in November, you know, what what is the likelihood that I'll buy additional cows or have to sell some off? You know, just things like that, you know, just help make decisions. And then when the drought comes, uh, maybe put some of those decisions into writing so that you can you can pull the trigger on them when it when the time comes and and make those decisions instead of thinking about the last minute. So that's kind of the 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 real short story of how <laughs> the drought tool came about. And I um, I had a lot of help from people that know how to program in Excel and Visual Basic and things like that because I I'm not really a, a computer programmer but but it's it's been a it's it's been a lot of fun in a way and very challenging and I hope that it's it's a good tool that's helpful for people to to plan before and through the drought you know when it happens well certainly I've I've been impressed by the tool and thank you so much for helping us with that powerpoint that sort of explains the tool so you know if nothing else I always tell people if nothing else it's the, it's the darned easiest way to collect preset data for the area that you're in. I mean, you can't think of it's like you push a button and all the preset data for whatever station you want in the last two years and and a percent of average is just right there in front of you. So whether or not it predicts production very well, it's still it's a good way to look at the weather data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Mitch Mitch Fortner reckons he's he's been so surprised at how accurate the prediction is so that that's good and I guess that goes back to that handbook right yeah so you know there was two the the primary um equation if you will that came out of that handbook was a, a two-year average so it's uh you look at the last two years of precip compared to the historical and then you weight the previous 12 months 25 percent weight the last 12 months is a 75% weight. It's a, just a simple math formula. And then the other one that was in there is kind of a that spring critical period, that uh, April, May, June kind of time frame, March, April, May, whatever. And uh, and then you can use that all by itself to predict what your production will be for that year. And we kind of decided to combine those two together. And then working with Dr. Gail Dunn, we also brought in the fall critical period and uh, and some other factors too um and i was going to mention something and it slipped my mind <laughs> um but uh oh i know so um we've mitch and i and others have been pretty uh happy with with how the tool has been working i think i mean we think it's pretty accurate um we what i did do is is pull in our uh, national resources inventory data so actual clipping data and compare the predicted value to those and that's how I how I tweak and calibrate the tool is by using that clipping data. But uh, some interesting news and we'll see how it all comes out is that uh, um, we are working right now with the Rocky Mountain Research Station on a drought drought tool validation project. And so we have uh, two very capable statisticians. Um, one who's just amazing to me. I just, I don't know how people think like that, but anyway, <laughs> and and we're running the tool through the through the uh, the ringer, if you will, or whatever, and seeing how you know how how truly good does it do at predicting, and uh, so we'll see how that comes out. So far, it looks pretty promising. That you know, uh, you know, as it's as it's advertised, it's actually it actually does predict fairly well, or it's pretty good at doing it. So. Um, that's going to be 
probably published into a paper um, uh, this fall, I'm going to guess, or this summer or fall. So we'll be able to kind of point back to a, some some data and some research saying that it actually it, it is a valid way of looking at things. And so, so if you're a South, Car South Dakota rancher, you've got a really great drought tool at your disposal. And if and if I can use it easily, then then you should be able to use it really easily. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty simple. It's not too hard. And 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 I'm really kind of excited about uh, tomorrow. We're we're going to have a uh, a webinar with the South Dakota Soil Health Coalition on on the same topic. And and uh, uh, and Dr. Uh, Laura Edwards is going to be talking about uh, the 30-day and 90-day outlook and how what it means and how to use it, because that's one of the things I'd, I'd like to automatically incorporate into the drought tool is that that 90 day outlook. So when we do predict out into the future, it's actually based on some forecast instead of just, you know, saying we're going to use the normal, you know, values or whatever. So yeah. that'll be interesting. Is that an open webinar? Yes, I believe so. Um, I can get you the information when we get done here. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Thanks. We, okay. can, we can try and just put it out on our social media. So okay. People, yep. I'll, yep. I'll send an email to Cindy to, to awesome. send you. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, Stan, um, one of the things when, when we were talking to you guys, uh, we had a lot of R words you know, resilience and roots and rhizosphere and everything else. And you came back and you said, uh, you know, when you want to make something memorable, you should think uh, sort of like a, a, a three point uh, alliterated sermon. So we took your advice there and, and we we used the, the the idea of those three words, rotate, rest and recover. But I know that you really were interested also in seeing rate. There were reasons why we left it out. You know, we didn't want to confuse it with fertilizer rate. But talk to us about why stocking rate in that scheme of rotate, rest, and recover is so important. I do like those those three words, by the way. I think that's it's they're somewhat catchy in a way, if you will. I mean, it's easy. Let me put it this way. Easy to remember, you know, and I, I so I do like that. Um, one of the one of the things I, I mentioned was rate. And um, when you um, look at a grass plant and uh, and you've seen this before, but when you when you graze a grass plant down to 50 percent by by weight at that point in time, physiologically, something starts to happen in the roots. And so really at, at about 50% utilization rate by weight, um, there's an impact on the roots. And what it is, you know, generally speaking, is probably roughly a 5% of the roots stop growing for maybe three to four days or so. When you, when you move from 50% to 60% utilization, and this is all from a 1955 study by Kreider, but uh, so far hasn't really been disproven, but um, when you move to 60% utilization rate, the amount of, of roots that stop growing moves up to like 40%. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's a much higher percentage of the roots stop growing. Not only that, but they stop growing for a longer period of time. So you go from three to four days of 5% roots stopping to grow to 
like a week and a half or something of 40% of the roots stopping to grow. And every step up you go in the amount of forage you remove, those grass plants that were grazed, um, you know, more and more of the roots stop growing for a longer and longer period of time. And so what happens when you think about South Dakota, the Northern Plains, we have a, a limited growing season. And if you're in the middle of that growing season and you stop the roots to, from growing for a month, let's say, which can happen, then they're not going to rebuild any roots, maybe for the remainder of that growing season. Now you think, well, you know, they'll have time next year to recover and that's possible. But the other thing to factor in is that from 30 to 50% of the roots in, in a grassland die off every year. And more commonly now, they think it's closer to 50%. So right off the top, every year you lose 50% of the root system that just dies off. And I, I say die off, actually, I think it's, it's uh, uh, purposefully given to the soil microbiota, if you will, you know, and so it's, it's a natural thing though. They, they lose 50% of the root mass every year and it has to be rebuilt through the, you know, the carbon that's made by photosynthesis down into the roots and that root systems replenished. So if you, if you, you reduce the amount of growth for a period of time and then you you can't rebuild over time what happens is the roots shrink you know and so that's but um beyond that um we have a uh, a group of people it's it's a multi-agency and university it's called the conservation effects assessment project and seep for short and those folks are tasked with looking at our conservation practices within NRCS at a national level and determining if they're effective at really doing what we say they do. And so they use research, they use data from like NRI, National Resources Inventory. And in a report that they made for Rangeland, they said they thought the most important um, aspect is rate, you know, stocking rate. Now, when you talk to adaptive grazing management folks, um, which a lot of research doesn't get into that kind. It's hard to build a, a research model after a system that's always changing, you know, with, with adaptive grazing management. So, but it's still, it's important. Let's, I'm just going to leave it there that it is, it's an important factor. And, and so when you think about setting up a grazing system, whether you're looking at it from a stocking rate standpoint or a stock density standpoint, it still comes back to rate. That's one of the key factors for developing that grazing system, if you will. So, you know, it's important, but uh, but so are, you know, uh, changing your season of use, which is that rotating, you know, uh, you know, so rotate is, you think of rotate as just rotating between paddocks, but it's also ro changing or rotating your season of use. And so there's two parts of that kind of that rotate and, uh, and the rest and recovery, you know, are so critical too. So they're all important, but, <laughs> You know, and I'm not going to, honestly, I, I'm not, I myself would not give any more importance or lend any more importance or whatever to rate versus recovery versus changing the season of use. I think they all three are equally important, but, you know. Gotcha. It, gotcha. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Now, when you talked about utilization, I'm assuming uh, rate, when you're talking about rate, you're talking about the actual stocking rate and you were just setting us up with this whole idea of utilization. Is that right? Yeah, okay. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Now, there are uh, there are exceptions to that and different. And, and so some you can uh, 
in the short term get away with have, uh, higher utilization rates as long as you have a longer recovery period, you know, and uh, so it's it's not a hard and fast rule, but it is something that happens. It's There's a question of economics that uh, I wanted to ask. Um, Dan Anderson wrote to me um, after our meeting in faith and he said, you know, one of the big impacts of going with the kind of grazing system he went to was um, uh, was was that, uh, you know, basically rotational grazing and in increasing the amount of rotation he was doing, adaptive management, changing season of use, everything else, was he increased his uh, production by 80 to 100 percent, and that allowed him to bring his daughter uh, and um, uh, so, so pass the farm on to the next generation. I thought that was a wonderful way to say this has changed changed the life of a you know of a family. Oh, so yeah. I don't know if you had any comments on the economics of good grazing management. Uh, Eighty to one hundred percent sounds uh, like a lot of uh, like a lot of um, it's big change. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a couple things on that. So when you go when you change from um, and uh, Doug Vick and I, the economist that used to be here in South Dakota, kind of developed. Uh, kind of a uh, spreadsheet on this at one point in time, but um, the first thing that happens when you go from, let's say, continuous season-long grazing to rotational grazing, and this is this is a benefit like right away, it's maybe not a huge benefit, but it is a benefit, is you change from essentially 25% harvest efficiency to maybe 30% or even 35. So right away you're taking let's say 2,400 pounds of production out there, instead of using, um, what would that be, six? Instead of using 600 pounds, you're now using 800 pounds, let's say, or whatever, um, that's actually getting into the cow. Um, so that's an, an, an immediate benefit. Now, what happens over time, and this is kind of what our spreadsheet showed too, is that over time, you start building capacity in that system. So because with continuous seasonal grazing, um, you tend to uh, overgraze the the more the, what we call the decreasers, and 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 so you lose that component of your community. But so over time, you build you build the capacity of that site to grow grass, and so you re, you gradually increase the production on the site so that thirty to thirty five percent harvest efficiency keeps growing year after year because your production is increased too. And so, so there compound interest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A good, uh, good analogy there. So, um, so it is a real deal. I mean, uh, there's been some people uh, that have even spoke at some of our events in South Dakota that said, if you change to rotational grazing, you can immediately double your stocking rate. That's, in my mind, not true, all the time or everywhere. Or, in, and I would say that's probably pushing an envelope a little bit too much to just say. Yeah, go out and double your stocking rate, the number of cows you have on your ranch. But I will say that that you can likely see an increase in the number of cattle that you can run and uh, and at the same time seeing an improvement in the resources. So a lot of it is efficiency, but then you you get that that uh, that return on the investment, if you will, with the, the production increasing over time. So it is it is an, an important thing. If have you read um, Grass the Stockman's Crop, that publication, and it talks about it in there. Um, that's a good 
I think when they first published that, I think they initially said you could double your stocking rate and then they backed off on that and said, you know, basically you can increase your stocking rate, but you know, you have to keep monitoring your conditions and, and see that increase over time. Um, it's not automatic doubling of your stocking rate, but, um, but it is, it is, you know, a good deal. Okay, that's cool, cool. Well, I think I'm gonna ask you one last question and we may have to come back and, and visit <laughs> a little bit more, but one last okay. question over here. Um, what mindset changes or lessons learned lessons learned could help other ranchers begin or continue to improve their grasslands you know the, um, and that's a really broad question from continuous grazers to guys who may have uh, you know a little bit of water in three or four paddocks but what mindset changes should we be seeing to get these guys to improve their rangeland um I think uh, one of the things, and I think this quote is from uh, Stan Parsons, and uh, he said uh, one of the problems is people spend too much time working in the operation and not enough time working on the operation. And and so I would just encourage people to to take the time to um, to go to like the Grassland Coalition events or Soil Health Coalition events to go to. Uh, to learn more about, um, you know, the resources out there and to educate yourself on 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 management and things like that. Um, one of the the opposite things, if you will, of of actual adaptive management, and that's kind of reactive management. And that's when you have a problem and the first thing you turn to is technology. You know, I'm going to buy this uh, this product or this seed or something to fix the problem. And when really the the problem is probably something with to do with if you change your management, which is a lot harder to think about and to work on, uh, that's what's going to actually fix the problem instead of addressing the symptoms. So I would just encourage people to take advantage of those events out there and and to 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 learn more about you know how how things um, can be managed and stuff. The second thing I guess I would say is. Uh, you know, after you go and you see the rainfall simulator, <laughs> and and your and your jaw drops when you see the what happens there, or you go to an event and anything you pick up, um, uh, just start small and you'll start to see some impact. So let's say, for instance, you say, okay, yeah, I I could see maybe dividing up my pastures. My I can see that harvest efficiency thing that he just talked about. You know, I could get more of that grass into my cow. Don't don't like go out and divide every pasture on your whole place into four pieces and just put one fence out there and see if what we're saying is true you know divide that 320 acre piece into two 160s you know and do that for a year or two and see what you see you know see what happens and you'll start to see changes and then um you know nature will kind of give you an idea of how it's going to work but you know start small make some small changes and then uh, you know and then keep moving towards the goal and that's another thing too is again going back to working in the operation instead of on the operation if we spent step back step back and take a look at the the operation and start looking at goals not only for our business but goals for our family and goals for our resources the natural resources you know all three parts and then uh, and write down some goals what do I what do I 
envision this ranch looking like in five years or 10 years? You know, what do I want to see out there? And one of those things might be the the kids coming back and working on the place or whatever. So, you know, I think that's a few of the tips I would throw out there. <laughs> no, that makes that makes a whole lot of sense there. Well, Stan, um, we've got about five minutes left. So are there any other things you just wanted to talk about that maybe I hadn't asked you? Possibly maybe um, th that other topic, you know, there's this whole alphabet soup of, you know, prescribed grazing. That's the, the NRCS standard 528, I think, rotational grazing, mob grazing, oh. management intensive grazing, etc. <laughs> and and but they all seem to come really under this rubric of um adaptive grazing management am i right so uh and i tell folks this a lot you know there there is you know short duration grazing there's uh, high intensity low frequency like you said and management intensive grazing there's mob grazing it's ultra high stock density but it really boils down to in my mind that um uh it's adaptive management, whether you're doing continuous season long grazing or ultra high stock density. You know, when you go out there and graze something, pay attention to what's going on. You know, watch, observe, see what's happening and, and get that feedback from the system. And then, you know, uh, proactively change, adapt your management to, uh, to, you know, fit into the system instead of trying to force it to be the way you want it to be or whatever. So uh, yeah, that's that's what adaptive management is about, is people that are willing to go out and look at the cows, to look at the grass, and uh, and to say, hey, this didn't work too good. I'm going to, and and not just, you know, say, okay, I split into two pastures. It didn't work, so I'm going to go back to one pasture. Not that kind of reactive management, but, but adaptive. Really think about it. What am I seeing out there? I tried this, you know, and I'm looking at this and it's and it's telling me that this part worked, maybe this part didn't work. And so really uh, thinking about it, not just reacting, but you know, putting some thought into it and then adapting to that and and moving moving it ahead every step of the way like that. So the system doesn't matter. It's whether or not the 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 manager is actually paying attention and and uh, and fitting into the environment, changing, you know, adapting to things out there really that's important in my yep. mind. Yeah, I've heard Leland Schoon and Bart Carmichael say observation, 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 just like Jim Falstick says um, diversity, diversity, diversity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's like I uh, I used to tell uh, the young kids coming in, you know, a, a bad day in, in the office or a good day in the office is worse than a bad day out in the field or however it goes. Yep. But, you know, and and when you're out there, just keep your eyes open. You know, you may not feel like you got anything done, but it's 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 gold. I mean, being out there and observing nature, you you learn things. You know, whether or not you you passed a test or you know or you got the job approval authority or whatever. You know, you just you open your eyes and pay attention to what's going on, and you'll learn stuff. So, well, I think that's an awesome place to stop the podcast. Um, I I really appreciate your time with us, Stan Boltz, and. Uh, it sounds like you and I will probably need to visit a little bit more because I, I okay. had a few more things to, to talk about, but uh, we'll, we'll sign off at this point, Stan. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Buzz.
Well, Buzz, I know we talked about in the last podcast with James Halverson, Remember the R's. We at least gave a brief shout-out to that in the closing. Uh, you and Stan Bowles talked about that a little bit here in this podcast. Yeah, that's right. We um, have a slogan that we're beginning to work on, or we have been working on the three R's for resilient rangeland, rotate, rest, recover. And then, of course, Stan and a number of rangeland guys also want to talk about stocking rate. But uh, I, I, I particularly like the debate that we had around the three R's. And Stan, I think, did a particularly good job of talking about rotation, rest, and recovery in the context of proper stocking rate. Yes. Stan's a very knowledgeable, very passionate guy. I'm so happy we were able to get him on the podcast. Anything else you want to say to the audience before we let them go, Buzz? Well, just to say, you know, these NRCS guys have full-time day jobs. Um, They are, I mean, they deal with hundreds of emails a day sometimes. And so, you know, the fact that someone as busy as Stan, in demand as Stan, um, is willing to give some time to talk to us is really a pleasure and an honor. All right, well, we'll close this one out. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And remember the R's. Rotate, rest, recover. Once again, you're listening to the Growing Resilience podcast series, sponsored by the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service and produced by Soil Health Labs, based out of the Arnold School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina.